Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. So go on Amazon and do a quick search for books about gluten, and you'll find over 3,000 search results. Everything from cookbooks to diet guides, even children's books show up. If you're a listener to this podcast and you don't have celiac disease, these are probably not books we're likely to find in your home library. Happily, there's one book on the first page of results, which is where you want to be if you want to sell books, that you actually should own, called The Gluten Lie. It's well-researched, backed up with peer-reviewed data, and it's about much more than gluten. Who wrote this book, you ask? Maybe a fellow MD out there who was just fed up with the latest irrational diet craze? No. This book was written by our guest today, Alan Levinovitz, who's actually a professor of religion and philosophy at James Madison University. As we'll soon explore with Alan, many of these diet crazes, pseudoscience myths, and other crazy beliefs are nothing new. They've popped up again and again throughout history, and if we don't learn from the history, well, you know what happens. This is actually a unique conversation, but probably one of the funnest we've had yet. Alan is fighting the good fight out there, writing for The Atlantic, Time, Fortune, and NPR, just to name a few. He's also a great guy to talk with and the kind of professor you wish you'd had in college. With that said, let's get started. You actually wrote a book about gluten. There's more than a few out there, but your background's a little different. How in the world does a professor of religion and philosophy find himself, one, becoming interested in this, and then writing a book about it? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a terrific question. It's a question I get asked a lot, but I'm going to give you, because, uh, because I... Because I like you guys and I like this audience that I'm talking to, I'm going to give you a different answer than the, than the pat answer I usually give. So, so, so here goes. I'm interested ultimately, and I've been interested in this for a long time, I'm interested in how people become persuaded of things. Um, I want to know why people end up believing the things that they do. And long ago, when I was an undergraduate, uh, you know, I, I was studying philosophy. And then I realized that there were all these other forms of persuasion that we didn't study in philosophy. Uh, stories, for example, are really persuasive, uh, as you know, because uh, for everyone out there who's listening to this, in the instructions that I was given for this podcast, I was told to tell stories because stories stick. But that's just another way of saying stories are persuasive in ways that other forms of rhetoric aren't. And so I realized that I needed to study it all. And so I started studying religion because religion, when you're studying religion, you can also study philosophy. Um, but when you're studying philosophy, you don't get to study religion. That's just how the, the, how the system works. And I ended up studying Chinese thought, which was a sort of trap. Uh, I, I don't know what the metaphor is here. Um, uh, Trojan horse, we'll say. That's not the right metaphor. But uh, it was a way to, it was, in other words, a way for me to be able to study philosophy and religion at the same time. Because in China, way back in the day, and so you could study people who were making their arguments with stories and making their arguments with logic and making their arguments with uh, empirical evidence, um, all kind of wrapped up in the same way. And of course, ancient philosophy was like that too. This is something that I think modern philosophers in a way have, have lost to their detriment, but that's a different podcast. So <laughs> at any rate, uh, I ended up studying this stuff and I went to grad school and I studied this one book that's just terrific. I'm not going to tell the people about it because it's very dangerous, but if they look me up, they can probably figure it out. And that book had a lot of clues about how people get persuaded of things. And one of the things, because I love food, that I ended up becoming curious about was how people 
were persuaded about what kinds of foods they should and shouldn't eat. And I, you know, put two and two together thinking, you know, oh yeah, wait, you know, in religions, there's a lot of food taboos. And I thought to myself, well, what if, what if it were the case that what appears to be people getting persuaded by bad evidence or something like that, or good evidence, honestly, uh, whatever it is, maybe the, it's not all science that is persuading people. Maybe there's some kind of hidden form of persuasion that is getting people to fear one thing instead of another. And lo and behold, as I started doing my research, not just on gluten, you know, because even though the book is called The Gluten Lie, not the title I chose, and in fact, a, a t t terrible mistake, one of many mistakes I made in the book, so I hope we could get to that. Uh, you know, I also look at gluten, fat, salt, and sugar. And as I did my research, I discovered that, yes, uh, many religious narratives and the religious rhetoric, um, religious practices and rituals could be fruitfully explored as ways of explaining the very complicated system out of which people's beliefs about food emerge. All right, Alan, I've always been under the impression that when you're looking at a lot of the food prohibitions and dietary restrictions of different religious beliefs, there was probably some sort of pragmatic origin for these, that there was pork and it was making people sick. And we don't know why, but let's just go ahead and make sure we're clear that this is not something to eat. Stay away from it. That's what God says. We're going to go with it. After reading your book and actually looking at some of the research you cited, that actually doesn't really explain it, does it, Alan? So well, g give us yeah. an idea, because that's, you know, there's even a cr really funny Chris Rock skit about this, and I think it's a common belief, but give, give us a little more light on that. Yeah, so I, you know, I don't, I don't actually remember, uh, I don't remember exactly what I said in the book. I hope I was right, but here's the, here's the <laughs> truth. I'll give it to your listeners first, so they can correct the book if they, if, and they will end up buying it, I hope, of course, because that's ultimately why I'm here. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so... So, so I, there's a combination of things going on with religious prohibitions, right? I have no doubt that somebody somewhere, some poor sap, ate some pork and got sick. Um, what I think is going on personally, and I haven't written about this yet because you only have so much time in your life. I think that every once in a while, a charismatic person ate something and got sick. And that charismatic person thought to themselves, they, were, they might also not have been very versed in science because it was a long time ago. So they probably thought to themselves, whoa, that thing made me sick. I'm going to tell everybody about this. This is great. Um, and so all of a sudden there's a prohibition, right? So that's the dietary prohibition that comes out of getting sick. But there's another dimension to this too. Um, there's the fact that that same charismatic person might have also gotten carried away with trying to figure things out in a way that was unempirical. So they might have looked at the pork and they would have said, why did that thing make me sick? And because they didn't know about trichinosis, they might have said, well, it came from a gross animal, a pig. Pigs are always rooting around and stuff. I know it's things that root around in things that, that make me sick. <clears throat> I'm gonna prohibit all of those kinds of things. And then what you end up with is prohibitions that are actually ways of parsing animals if you will, um, a kind of, you know, in a way like an alternative to Linnaeus or something, right? There's the animals that root around in things and there's the animals with scales and the ears, you know, but that's really, that's, that's a mixing up of the thing that made me sick with a heuristic for determining why it made me sick. And so the result of that is a bunch of dietary laws that are very difficult to sort through because they combine one kind of truth 
about the things that are causing you to get sick. Uh, you know, there really are animals that don't have scales and animals that do. So that's a truth about the world. And there are also things that make individuals sick, like pork that has trichinosis. And I don't know how that works. So there's probably someone on there that's like, you know, someone's listening to this right now. That's like, that's not how it works. But you get my, you get, you get, you get what I'm saying. Um, and, and so the problem is there's all these truths that get all mixed up together. And the result of it is, is complicated because it is true for some people in some ways and false for other people in other ways. And I think the problems and the psychological trauma that results are from people who are trying to follow rules for the wrong reasons, encountering people that are accidentally following those rules for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And here we, and that's it, the end. Yeah. <laughs> the end. <laughs> well, well, isn't, I mean, since the explanation, the trichinosis explanation came far after the prohibition, isn't there something in it to where let's look at this prohibition there's got to be a reason someone came up with it in the first place so isn't it almost the explanation that creates the problem i mean obviously trichinosis makes you sick but people fit into it and said aha that's why this prohibition is there so that's it's a good reason for it so let's continue it yeah um, absolutely or or there were, and this is where the religion comes in or the reason for the prohibition the prohibition itself took on a different form Right? right. So for some people, prohibitions are good because they're scared of the world. And right. those people need to know how to stay safe. Right. And so then the prohibition that originally came out of someone actually getting sick ends up serving a different purpose for other people. It is a way of feeling safe in the world. And so, yeah, so I, I like what you said, basically, is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think that's a nice way to think about it. But, 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 and this is another one of the terrible mistakes I made in the book. One of the things I used to think and no longer think is that it's really terrific to just if people are if people say that they're following something because it because and then they give an answer like I'm avoiding trichinosis. Right. And they're not avoiding trichinosis. I thought, well, I should tell them that I should tell them all about it. It doesn't it doesn't stop pork safe. <laughs> Don't eat kosher. But of course, if you think the Jewish analogy, that's ridiculous. Right. Um, I mean, of course, Jews don't say that that's why they're following it. So the Jews are better off than the people I was talking to in my book. But a lot of people, what they're not saying is that, or they maybe don't even realize, is that that's not the purpose that their dietary ritual serves. And so what right. I was doing in the book, basically, and I'm, I'm just absolutely uh, ashamed, honestly, to look back on it in this way, is I was walking into people's churches and I was saying to them, your rituals are worthless. They are false. You are worshiping false idols. And that is certainly not my place. Um, and maybe not, maybe not anyone's place unless that worship involves like child sacrifice, right? Unless, <laughs> unless the worship is a kind of worship that's like hurting people, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's not why I was going into the churches. I was just going to the churches because the, the, the exhilaration of pointing out false idols is a kind of sin that many of us um, and probably many of your listeners would do well to um, identify in themselves. Right. But, um, I mean, obviously not child sacrifice, but there is an aspect of the things you wrote about in your book that really are do cause problems. I mean, trying to keep a child from eating gluten 
is a problem because they miss out on nutrients. And if you're only doing it because you are convinced that gluten is some evil or preventing them from having salt, a certain amount of salt is, is important. So, you know, to some degree, you're doing the same service. You're, you're preventing some harm or at least bringing um, light to the fact that there is some harm from some of this quasi-religious um, uh, dietary fadism that, that you've been writing about. Absolutely. Um, uh, what, what I would say in response to that is that with, with those situations, right? So let's take an example that I, I, I don't write about in the book, but I wrote about an article for Wired magazine um, about an MD-PhD who ended up having two children um, with autism. And he became very involved in the alternative medicine community. He was, you know, he was a scientist, right? So he was telling these people, well, you're doing chelation. Uh, the way you're doing it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So he was like the scientist that was like, I'm going to get these people to do this thing right. I mean, uh, I, at the very least, right? But he was also involved in this community. And, 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 with, and, and the thing is, what I learned is that you got to lead with love. You got to lead with love. You mm. have to care about the person that you're talking to. And as an individual physician, you have the extraordinary privilege of being able to lead with love with a person in your office or wherever they are. And so you can, if you lead with love in that world or in that situation, um, I think you can do a lot of good, right? If there's a parent whose autistic child is, you know, nutritionally deficient because they're on a gluten-free, casein-free diet that they think cures autism and it, and it doesn't, um, you can lead with love and help that person. But a book is a different thing than a doctor's office. And sure. I'm a different thing, or I was back then, than a person who led with love. So instead of doing everything that I'm saying we should do, I did have the opposite, which is I thought that books were the same as doctor's offices, and I didn't have to lead with love. And basically what I ended up doing was only, in the same way that people, some people probably accidentally have celiac disease, go gluten-free, they're undiagnosed, and they get better. So there's this like accidental thing going on there. Or the people that avoid pork, and actually through sheer luck, don't get trichinosis, you know? Um, there were some people that my book helped and they reached out to me and it was really touching. Um, it was people who were orthorexic, uh, people who needed someone to tell them it was okay to eat foods that they had prohibited, people who were harming themselves through dietary prohibitions. Those people were the people that needed my book. Um, but because of the title, because of the way it's marketed, and because of the catastrophic uh, way in which the media talks about science in general and diet specifically, it was virtually impossible for me to reach those people. And instead I ended up reaching the wrong people for the wrong reasons. And mm -hmm. here we are. Yeah. Wow. There's so many directions we can go here. Um, it's only so much time. Let's take a step back here, Alan, because I do want to talk more about how to communicate with patients and, and, thinking about this from our audience's view, which is mostly physicians. Let's take a step back, and this is more in your area here, because we want to talk about not only where these, you know, these beliefs come from, but the, how they actually propagate a belief and maintain it. And let's take a look back at your area. So we're looking at these ancient Chinese monks, and about 2,000 years ago, these are the original Taoist um, founders, they decided to go grain-free almost like their own version of the uh, anti-carb diet 2,000 years ago. And this was a big deal because in China, 
grains and rice were the staple and the foundation of the diet. And there's more to it than that. You described that actually cultivating grains and agriculture are a way to distinguish them from the barbarians on yeah. the other side of the, the wall, right? So tell us about how food and how you regulate it with a, a group actually serves as a way to distinguish that group from other groups and make it more difficult to challenge those beliefs even you know through self-analysis yeah yeah well so okay so for the next half hour ladies and gentlemen <laughs> i'm gonna talk and answer this question no i'm sorry, okay i'm gonna try to keep it short uh so so the grain-free months let's talk about the grain-free months let's try to let's try to think about them in the context of the other things we've been talking about so let's imagine for example and this is a hypothesis that i've i i, I rejected actually in the book but i'm coming to accept in certain ways now let's imagine that uh some people, you know, it's like, it's like milk, right? Uh, only a third of people can drink milk, right? Um, and that's because this is, you know, for a variety of reasons that have to do with evolution. Um, and, and I don't want to get into the weeds here because this is the kind of debate that really turns off some people or they get really, uh, they get upset when they hear things like evolution, this evolution, that, um, but let's say that for hypothetically these Taoist monks, maybe there was some guy, some really charismatic guy. They were always guys back then, um, who, who was the equivalent of lactose intolerant um, for the grains that were in China, mm -hmm. right? Agriculture is a pretty recent phenomenon. You know, it's only been around in China, let's say. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, but let's you know, say like a couple thousand years, whatever. Um, and he's like, whoa, when I stop eating the five grains, I feel terrific. And he really does feel terrific. It is an, it is an actual legitimate miracle, right? Combine that with the temptation of sticking it to the man, right? Because everyone wants to stick it to the man. You don't want right. to be like those mm -hmm. sheeples out there that are always doing all the other stuff, right? So you think to yourself, wow, I feel a lot better. Maybe it's because I'm different from everyone else. Maybe it's because I'm doing something different from the masses. That's a very tempting kind of belief. Everyone's tempted by it. If you don't think you're tempted by it, be careful because you are. You know what I mean? Right. So... Those two things in combination create a rhetorical system that is unstoppable, right? Because there's a person who's evangelizing, who has experienced an actual miracle, like a real one. They really feel better. Imagine here in this, you know, the analogy to gluten, right? Imagine someone with undiagnosed celiac who, who's got like terrible arthritis. They've, they've got horrible IBS. They've got, you know, depression. I mean, God knows what kinds of things. You know, it's, it's awful when you have celiac and you're eating gluten, you know what's going on. You stop eating. And your life literally, you experience a miracle, like an actual real life miracle. And then you combine that with the natural human tendency to want to feel superior to the masses. And voila, you have the grain-free monks of ancient China, or you have the gluten-free movement of today. And, and I, and I want to add a little bit more here. I know we only have so much time, but thinking back to the grain-free monks, right? Well, let's say it's a fourth of people in China are grain intolerant in the same way that a third of people today roughly are lactose intolerant. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've got a pretty tremendous movement because right. a fourth of people are like, oh my God, the, he's right. <laughs> he's right. I stopped eating grains. I feel so good. And the yeah. other people are like, uh, grains are the most delicious thing in the world. And they separate us from the barbarians. What are you doing? You guys are nuts. Um, and so you have a movement that's difficult to deal with because it is complicated. Right. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of complicated truths going on in it. And so if you fast forward to today, well, it's not so hard to see what's going on. Right. There's maybe, let's say, I don't know, uh, one to three percent of people 
um, I, I'm going to be generous with these numbers because you got to lead with love, right? So let's say one to 3% of people have celiac disease. That's a high number. It's probably around 1%, but right. let's just say, or let's say, let's say here, let's do it differently. 5% of people, gluten does something bad to them. <laughs> well, a lot of us are looking in on this. 95% of us that are like, uh, croissants are delicious. If you're not part of that 5%, eat croissants, man. Or maybe you're a doctor and it's not just croissants. Maybe it's, hey, your kid is suffering and your kid is not part of that 5%, right? But if part of that 5% is celebrities, and which it will be always because right. in any group of celebrities, 5% of them are just like 5% everybody else, right? they are going to create an enormous movement. And if you couple that with the extremely sophisticated delivery devices that we have for ultra processed rhetoric in modern <laughs> times, what you get is an extraordinary vector for infusing. I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here, but whatever. I'm, I'm not the doctor. I am, but you guys are the doctor doctors. Uh, for infusing society with these kinds of beliefs, right? And so that's it's really important, I think, to have a clear picture of all of these things that I'm talking about so that we can begin to tackle a problem which ultimately I believe I was tackling in the wrong way in the book. Okay, so we're tackling it now. We are. And we're trying to understand where people are coming from. And as you said, it can be very intoxicating to think, I know something everybody else doesn't know. I have a truth that not everybody else has access to. Even though I want to spread that truth, I still have it myself. And that's just the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And what, we, of course, we have is today is the velocity of information, how fast it can get out. And that, that makes it even more difficult for physicians to combat this. I mean, it's coming at every different direction. Um, there's another thing, too, that you talked about, and that's the sunk cost fallacy. And once you're in this, sometimes it's hard to get out. Yeah. One, there's a little inertia there, but there's also the idea that I've really invested myself in this. I've told everybody I'm going to do this. There's the idea between clean and unclean. Let's talk about that. How, what, what are the forces keeping a patient from listening to the instructions the doctor's trying so hard to get across to them? Holy moly. There's like a million forces. Let's start with the sunk cost bias, and that'll bleed into all of these other things. So this patient has, like you said, you know, Colin, they, they told their friends they're gluten-free. Well, once you've named something, it's very difficult to unname it. I know this because I changed my last name. When I married my wife, I was Dagovitz. She was Levin. We became the Levinovitzes. And you know what happened? My dad lost it. He nearly disowned me, <laughs> right? So once you've, once you've named yourself, uh, it's very difficult to let go of that name, in part because that name is probably linked up with a community, right? So if you go gluten-free right. or you paleo or whatever you are, you, you, your identity, it's not just money, right? Which is where the sunk cost bias, I think, comes out of. It's, 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 it's your very being is invested in, in that label. Um, so that's one thing that's stopping physicians, I think, from being able to, or whoever, right? That's one thing that you need to think about when you're talking with someone. And you need to think about also how that relates to courtesy. Because when you're telling them, oh, there's not evidence for this, it may feel to you, since you're not them, that you're just like having a fun conversation about science. But like, really, what you're saying to them is something along the lines of, there's a part of you that there's not a lot of evidence for, um, which is right. you know, an, another way of saying that you're being yeah. rude. 
uh, or tactless is the word yeah. for it. Um, okay, so there's that. Then there's something else, and I want to tell a story because stories are 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 really persuasive. So I uh, <laughs> my book was my book was translated into Portuguese um, for the Brazilian market, and I have this wonderful wonderful editor, Marcial. Hey, Marcial, you're probably not listening to this, but I love you. And Marcial calls me one day, and he's just, he's actually sends me an email, and his email is like, I have to talk to you right now, Alan. I have to. Uh-huh. So I get on Skype. I say, Marcial, what's going on? What's going on? I said, you're not going to believe what just happened to me. I was at the beach and I was talking to this woman. And the woman's, you know, she's like, oh, what do you do for a living? And he, you know, he tells her, I'm an editor. I publish books. She says, oh, what kind of books do you publish? Marcial says, oh, yes, the books. And he mentions the, the gluten lie, la mentira do gluten, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she says, no, really? You published that book? I want you to thank the author on behalf of my husband. I said, oh, wow, maybe her husband, you know, was now he gets to eat gluten again, right? Well, here's the thing, and I'm going to give something away to your audience now, um, but that's okay. At the end of the gluten lie, as you know, Colin, there's a fake diet. This fake diet is called the unpacked diet. And in this fake diet, I use all of the rhetorical techniques that I've been educating my reader about throughout the entire (laughs) book. Uh, The diet tells the reader that if they just don't eat packaged foods which are the sinful products of modernity and they, and they don't eat plastics and they don't eat anything that's ever come in contact with packaging that they will, you know, they'll lose weight, their brain fog will go away. They'll finally, instead of being the disgusting slobs that they are, because that's part of the rhetoric that these people use, instead of like living miserable, sad lives where they're not famous and strong and beautiful and wonderful and rich or whatever, you know, all the promises that these people, these, these maybe well-intentioned and maybe evil, who knows, uh, make, depends on the person. Um, so I use all those techniques and then in the second part, uh, there's another part of the unpacked diet where I reveal all the techniques, right? Okay. Sorry. So that's the background you need to understand what happens to Martial when he's on the beach. So this woman says, you got to thank Levinovitz on behalf of my husband. He started following the unpacked diet (laughs) and he's lost 20 pounds and his brain fog went away. And then she goes, she goes, tell him. Tell him I don't think the aluminum foil is important part because my husband still uses it to package his sandwiches. Oh, man. See, I, that was actually my list of questions here. I was going to ask you if you ever thought about just taking that one segment and republishing it just for fun. You know, now, I, But you don't have to. I'm not going to say anything about that, but let's just say between uh, us and your listeners, at one point that was suggested to me, and it was only half tongue-in-cheek. Mm. I would, in order to do that, I would have had to find an MD um, because another rhetorical form that is extremely important is the letters that come after your name, right. as you well know, which is why it's so important, for example, for people who want to legitimize themselves to call themselves doctor. In fact, I went to the mat with my publisher um, about having PhD on the cover of my book. I didn't want it there. I didn't want it. And I argued and argued and argued. But, and I'm going to say this too, because I'm not with this publisher anymore. And and this is an engine of evil in our society. Um, The publisher, Judith Regan, insisted that it be on the cover. And she insisted that it be on the cover because she wanted to use a form of persuasion which swaps one kind of credential for another in order to exert a form of authority that you aren't entitled to. And that is not good. It's not good. And I don't like it. 
And I wish that, I mean, I had no choice really, I guess, with the first book. And because it landed me here talking to you guys, um, because it landed my second book contract and my wonderful agent and my new publisher beacon, which is like pure and good and true. I'm really grateful to that book. Um, but that book was the product of my editor, um, who was a really good guy. And it came in the context of a machine that is not so good. Um, so yeah, so that was a lot there, but I hope, I hope I'm making myself clear. No, you are indeed. Well, Colin and I were talking a little bit about that because um, it seems like some of the fatism, some of the um, the hype comes from the various doctors in the world. There are a lot of different types of doctors and people don't necessarily know that. But there is also a little bit of unconscious um, things that MDs do where we agree with something. I always say, or, you know, they say, well, you know, I read this book and, and we inadvertently say, yeah, that has some substance or something like that. Um, we have a lot of responsibility because we are sort of the, in a way, if you continue this, this strange um, religion um, concept, we're sort of the high priest. And that yeah. sounds bad coming from a doctor. Oh, we have to be really careful not to agree or not to say, actually make the judgment because we're going to have our own influence. How, how do you get our listeners to understand that and, to, and to, to stop and say, wait a minute, what I'm saying really has an effect on these people? I don't know, man. You tell them. Hey, guys, ladies, what you're saying really has an effect on people. There we go. They'll, they'll listen to you. They won't listen to me. But <laughs> Well, that's because I'm a different kind of priest. So that's right. Sometimes yeah. you need to hear it from another kind of priest. Um, I want to say something. Can I say something about doctors? Please. Um, so I wrote this. The, I wrote After I did The Gluten Lie, um, I started thinking to myself, you know, sometimes it's people that are like, I'm a PhD, and it's like a PhD in, like, you know, religion like me, right? But they use it to seem like they have, a, they have like, a doctor. They're a doctor, right? But there's actually a lot of MDs who are writing these books, right? So the two mm -hmm. biggest books, uh, Grain Brain and, and Wheat Belly, were written by uh, MDs. Um, I mean, they're not, you know, they're not experts on nutrition, but that doesn't matter, right? I mean, MDs should know what they're doing, right? And that's and and so that's a problem that I think we need to deal with. And I think I actually have something interesting for all of you on that. So I'm going to talk about each of these respective men in turn. They already hate me, so I can just <laughs> psychoanalyze them, um, and they're not going to hate me any more than they already do. Um, so David Perlmutter, the author of Grain Brain, um, his his father. I'm like doing psychology now, but you know what? That's storytelling of a different kind. His father was also a neurologist and they worked together um, from a very young age that he published his first, actually he published his only legitimate articles as far as I remember with his father. Um, they were obviously extremely close. And, you know, I, I, after I finished the gluten lie, I wrote this just scathing takedown of Perlmutter. I thought he was a monster. I really did. I thought he was like a shaman shaman zealot who was living in florida you know milking people for money man and i just wanted to destroy him and in that article i also wasn't leading with love um, because it's hard to love people who are you know whose souls are deformed by pain sometimes but alan don't hold back tell us how you think <laughs> <laughs> I'm confessing to you guys aren't you priests <laughs> all right absolve me at the end of this damn thing so so I think what happened with him was his dad got Alzheimer's and he couldn't help his father. His, all of the stuff that he was studying, all the stuff his father had studied, all the stuff he'd learned in medical school, none of it could stop the world from taking this man that he loved away from him. 
And so what I think he did was he rejected that world in the same way the, the grain-free monks rejected their world. And he said, this can't, the, none of this can be true. The miracles, because he needed a miracle. Because when you're confronted, wait, what do you, I'm sorry. What, uh, what, what kind of, pe- you're a pediatric, what? I was a pediatric orthopedist. Yeah, okay, so pediatric orthopedist. So, you know, I mean, you maybe you don't encounter this quite as much. You probably encounter kids who are in a lot of pain. Dude, um, absolutely, yeah. You know, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to encounter pain of that kind and keep their heads together. And if it's your dad that, that is, that is being taken from you, um, you know, who knows what that does to you? I don't know. Thank, I mean, you know, knock on wood, thank you know, there, but for the grace of God. Right. So, so I think what happened was he was like, well, I'm going to cure, I mean, I'm going to come up with a miracle, right? He just had to just for himself. He had to do it. And I think what happened is that somewhere along the way, you know, his first book, like, it doesn't even mention gluten at all, right? It's amazing. You know, it's, and he's actually getting miracles out of people. He is. Because one out of 100 people who come to you, that what they really need, what they're really doing is they're going to confession. You know, um, one in 100 people just need rules to make them feel safe in the world. So mm-hmm. he started curing people who were uncurable, quote unquote, right? And the uncurable cures are one of the many engines that the, quote unquote, anti-establishment community uses to uh, denigrate the authority of the establishment. They're like, doctors said they couldn't survive, but they did, right? It's like, uh-oh, right? And, and, and of course, I think people under, you know, in the, in the medical community, people understand that that's just how it is, right? We're going to be wrong sometimes. I mean, if it's a one in a thousand chance that, that the cancer, you know, I mean, that's like a very low chance, but actually a lot of people are going to recover from that. A lot of right. people. And those people are going to become evangelists of a religion that is antithetical to the people who looked them in the eye and told them that they were probably in a literal sense of that word going to die. Right. Um, and so Perlmutter then I think at a certain point found that it was very remunerative (laughs) to do this sort of thing. And it maybe his father faded in his, maybe he forgot about his father, um, by staring at, by living in his large mansion. Um, I don't know how, I don't know what, you know, whatever. I don't know him that well. Um, and, and then another, <laughs> another version of this happens with uh, someone like William Davis in Wheatbelly, right? So William Davis was fat. He was a fat man. And some fat people uh, understand that that doesn't matter very much. And you can live a wonderful life because they're not superficial and they don't hate themselves. Um, because being fat is not a, bad, not a bad person if you're fat. But, you know, it takes a special kind of person to understand that in a society in which headless photos of fat people are being paraded in front of you as exemplars of a plague that is sweeping the world. In that world, it's very difficult not to loathe yourself um, if you are obese. Um, and sometimes, and for some people, right, it's just even being fat. I mean, of course, there's a lot of eating disorders. Right? So anyway, okay, back to William Davis. So dude's fat. And fat people are struggling to figure out ways to lose weight. And one way to lose weight, I think, is to find a diet that you believe in so strongly that you can make it a way of life. Right. If you can make that diet a way of life, and that includes coming up with a community, um, making like burning rules on your soul. If you can do that, you can successfully lose weight and keep it off. In my opinion, the same thing happened with Gary Taubes, but that's a different story, which is what flipped him from solid science journalist to, he's basically that guy who like, there's this guy who defends creationism, but it's also like a PhD in like biology, right? Every once in a while, these people happen. But it's important right. to know, right? And so at any rate, um, <laughs> back to William Davis, who I know better than Gary Taubes. And Gary, if you're listening to this, uh, much love. Um, you're a good guy. And I know that. And keep, keep fighting the good fight. 
at any rate, William Davis, he lost a lot of weight. And he was like, I'm going to tell people how I lost weight. I did it by coming up with a set of rules that I believed in as truth with a capital T. And it's anti-establishment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think Dr. Davis got a lot of feedback from people who were like, oh, my gosh, you helped me lose weight. Because if a diet works for only one in 100 people, that's a lot of people. And their friends are like, whoa, Lucy is looking good. She dropped the weight with that William Davis diet. I want it because in our society, sadly, catastrophically, weight loss is some kind of salvation, which is, again, a different podcast, but it's something that we need to think very hard about um, when it comes to the way in which isolating the public sphere from open expressions of spiritual truths, which have been problematic in the past because they cause people to kill each other and think stupid things, but just banishing those entirely uh, makes room for a lot of demons. And one of those demons is the belief that salvation lies in losing weight. And that's, those are those stories about William Davis and David Perlmutter. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. There's, um, there's a study long ago where they looked at pigeons and the pigeons had no control over when the food was going to come out, but pigeons did what pigeons do. They made pigeon movements and um (laughs) when the food came yeah and when the food came out they learned that a certain movement was what they were doing and so they continued to do the movement and so even if the food was not hidden from them they did the pigeon move the specific movement and that was their their way of getting food so can um, i tell you what i thought you meant yeah, I thought you meant like a movement, like a religious movement. <laughs> oh, well, it's not that. It's not, not that different, movement. though. Well, actually, I, you know, it's not that different because they sort of taught other pigeons how to do it. So you have a whole bunch of pigeons who are bobbing in order to get this food, um, and it's not that different. It it's. Um, for instance, there, there was a, um, you know, he felt better because he had a diet. And really, it was the fact that he had a diet, not the diet, but a diet. Right. Um, and he had the structure and he had the discipline. But the the rest of the pigeons, and I shouldn't call anybody um, pigeons, um, said, oh, his bobbing up and down is what made him feel better. So we're going to bob up and down, too. Yeah. And it's really fascinating that how how close we are to pigeons in our behavior. And you really see it when you look at this kind of thing. That's amazing. What an amazing story. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So still on the topic of, of being overweight. And this one really blew my mind because I didn't know anything about this. This was the rice diet. You talked about this. And I live here in Durham. So this yeah, was, I was right there. here. At, at I was Duke. there. I was in the archives looking for stuff about uh, Kempner. Tell us about this guy, because, you know, when I listen to some of this, I think, okay, all of these techniques and all all of the aspects of a diet can actually help people, right? I mean, feeling part of a group, doing this together, even if it's not the best strategy, if it's working, um, sometimes it's working, right? Yeah. But you can go too far with this. So so tell us about this guy. I mean, I mean... This, this is huge. I, I didn't know much about it, but it was huge. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I, again, I'm not a, I don't have a fact mind, so you, whoever's listening will have to go purchase my book. Very reasonably priced on Amazon. Hello there. Uh, and fact check whatever <laughs> I say in this podcast with what I say in the book, which is- And write a good review for them, too. Which was sourced better. No, it's, the bad reviews are what sell that book, honestly. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so 
so Kempner, as I understand it, sometime in the, what, I mean, you read this movie, like 40s or something, I think, 40s or 50s, I don't know. Yeah, and then it really got big in yeah. the 60s yeah, yeah. because you so had, Kempner, I mean, all these Kempner, celebrities Kempner and NFL players coming in. He was a really smart guy. He was an incredible researcher. And he was one of the first people who figured out a diet that could help deal with renal problems. Um, so he saved a ton of people's lives by by putting them on this uh this really rigorous rice diet that was, you know, I think it was, you know, it's like a very, very, very rigorous diet. Um, you know, low, low salt, I think. <laughs> I'm yes, trying to remember. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically nothing in it, but rice, honestly, that's what was in the, maybe you can tell me, Keith, I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Basically yeah. just, just rice and yeah. Rice and whatever else you need to keep people around so they can go insane, right? Like that's right. Juice. That's you right. Know. Yeah. No salt, no dairy, that's no meat, no vegetables. Yeah. yeah. So, so Kempner saves a bunch of people's lives. Well, that's intoxicating. Because you now now you're a savior, um, and Kempner was like, "Well, surely if I'm a savior of some people, I must be able to save everyone." But Kempner, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So he's like, "I'll give my diet to everybody." Um, and because you, when you are a savior, you become incredibly charismatic, um, just through the intoxication of having saved people's lives, um, which is like a sort of reverse psychopathy, um, if you will. Uh, so you know, just as killing people can be a certain kind of weird intoxication, I guess, for some people, as I understand psychopathy, so too can saving people. Um, it's a good kind, but it can lead to a kind of egoism that's de- that's self-devouring. Right. Um, and so Kempner started giving his diet to everyone. He had all these like weird mistresses that were coming to Durham. They had all these fat people <laughs> flying in from everywhere because what Kempner discovered while he was putting his uh, patients the, for renal problems on this diet is they also lost weight. Of course they did because they were just eating rice and fruit juice, right? And they were on a calorie restricted <laughs> diet. So he's like, oh, this is great. I can solve, um, you know, the fat people problem, which is, you know, the the riddle that's been with us since, you know, the mid 1800s. There's actually a great book coming out called Diet and the Disease of Civilization um, from Rutgers Press that sort of mm. looks at four different rhetorical forms of modern diet books. That's really interesting on this. At any rate, Died in the Disease of Civilization, coming out soon. <laughs> Not by me, but it's a good book. Um, I've read it. And so that's what happened, right? So all these people started flying to Durham to lose weight. And not only did they find that they lost weight, uh, and you should read the book. The story is, is, is so unbelievable as to not be believable, which I guess is the definition of unbelievable. So you should just read the book. But, <laughs> but long story short, these people were flying to Durham, and they were losing weight, and they were also finding a community. They were finding a community of people because one way to establish a community, as religions have understood uh, sort of intuitively, is through dietary restrictions. And so there were all these people who couldn't eat anything. They were all together and they were all not eating everything <laughs> together. And and there you had it. And, and in a weird way, Kempner, for the ones among them who were who were broken in ways that went beyond their physical appearance, that was helpful, too. Um, and that takes us back to the thing I was talking about earlier, which is that maybe the rice diet wasn't about weight loss or renal disease or anything else. Maybe it was about finding meaning. Um, and even a bad savior with lots of mistresses um, who's kind of lost it can still save people in a real way, which is why, again, with the Perlmutter article that I wrote or with the gluten lie, what I did not think hard enough about is that when you go in and you tear down people's saviors in the same way that you might tear down their diet, you're telling them that a big part of themselves is false and fake and bad. Right. And that, as I said earlier, is tactless at best and cruel at worst. And I am ashamed yeah. of not having known that earlier. Hmm. And equally important, 
how effective you are. I mean, your your yes. objective is try to help these people, right? And yeah. Well, I don't know if it was back in the day, man. I don't know if it was. <laughs> yeah. I'm honest. I'm being honest. I think back in the day. I mean, not to to be fair to my former self. I think my objective was truth. Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about just you, Alan. I'm just talking about our viewers. Oh, you mean I mean, in general? We're, we're, we're learning tools here and talking about how to reach these yeah, patients. I, I, was yeah. just, I don't want to speak for right. anyone else. That's all yeah. I was saying. Oh, yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, the pursuit of truth is a very intoxicating thing as well. Um, and when you have that kind of scalpel, uh, you can slice up reality in a lot of really cool ways. And you can discover a lot of really cool things. But um, there's a lot of collateral damage in the process. Uh, the scalpel's cutting up people, too. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing. Right. So isn't there a concern, though, there's sort of an inevitability that, that no matter what we do, no matter how we try to instruct, no matter how many books we write, no matter how many monographs say, no, there is nothing to this, people are still going to drift into it just because it's an innate sense of community. It's innate need for them to be in part of a group of believers. Yeah. So, so what do we do <laughs> as doctors? I mean, aside from telling people, okay, you can go on this diet, but you have to make sure that it's healthy for you. You have to make sure that you go in with your eyes open. Yeah. Is there anything else we can do uh, on a broader scale to prevent this? Because it, uh, particularly some of these things like the low sodium, the, the, um, the gluten-free, that's a billion-dollar industry. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, people are being cheated out of billions of dollars because of this type yeah. of thing. Well, so yeah, there are things you can do, fortunately. Um, it's not hopeless. It's actually really easy. Well, it's not really easy. It's incredibly difficult, but very simple. So that's different from easy. Right. Um, as individual doctors, I mean, this is actually hard, right? Because structurally, your profession is set up so you don't have a lot of time. And it is difficult to love people when you don't have time for them. And one of the things that alternative medicine has that mainstream medicine does not is time. It's time. They've got time. You can just sit right. and listen to someone. You can sit and listen to someone and make them human through the act of listening. Right. And so I don't want to tell your listeners out there to do something that they are structurally prevented from doing. But that said, you got to love people. You have to love the people. You know, this sounds like a cliche, but like, you got to love the people that are in your office. Right. You have to care about them. And there is a way in which that it borders on enchantment that if you love the people, the same exact words, instead of being a scalpel, will be a balm. And I think you have to look inside yourself and ask yourself, as I have been doing um, after I wrote The Gluten Lie, do I love this person? Do I love these people? Do I really care about them? Really care. Not like do I care about the profession or care about getting things right or care about curing the disease, which is a different thing from loving the person. Wanting to, wanting to heal the person is different from loving the person. Um, and and, and when, you, when you do that kind of introspection, um, unless you're a very special person already, in which case you're already fighting the good fight, you're gonna find that often you love that person. And when that happens, you need to stop talking, I think, and listen to them yeah. until you love them. And then once you've done that, then you can just do all the normal doctory stuff that you guys do and ladies. Guys, it's like literally sexism. I know this is a, another podcast. But it's like <laughs> built into our language. It's crazy. I'm just yeah. going to start saying ladies instead of guys from now on. So, so, and, that, and, and so I don't know what you ladies do, but you, you, know, you can do that thing. Um, and it's going to be a very different thing when you do that. Now, that's a different question, right? Again, like I said much, much earlier, the doctor's office is a different place than a book. 
Um, what can you do in books? Well, that's harder. I actually think because there's not a human being there and because the conversation is unidirectional, you need to invent forms of speech that simultaneously speak truth while also loving the reader. Um, there are people who are able to do that. Uh, Annie Dillard does this in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek in a truly extraordinary way. Um, I'm trying to think of who other people who have invented these ways of talking. I, I will start, I'll stop there, right? But she does that. She's able to tell people, for example, that the natural world isn't just good, that it is also cruel, that it is not just meant for us, but it is also much larger than us. And she can tell people these things because she is, um, because she loves them and she loves the world and you can feel it in her writing. Right. And also because she's a genius <laughs> or at least she's a very there good writer. Go. Call it, call it what you will. Or she worked really hard on the book or whatever <laughs> it takes. Right. And so one of the things, one of the things I'm trying to do in my next book is that, um, I want, so I'm, you know, I'm writing out, uh, natural and this word natural, right. And had I written that book the same time I was writing the gluten, I would have been like, Oh yeah, yeah, you're stupid. Natural doesn't mean anything. Blah, blah, blah. The binary straight up. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like some people would have been like, yeah, that's crazy. That's great. Right. But those, those would be people would have been the minority and I would have hurt a lot of people and I would have been wrong about a lot of stuff also. Um, so I, I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do that. And uh, in this next book, um, I am going to try to do the things that I, I gestured at in the gluten lie, um, but only partially. I'm going to try to do those things um, because I think we're at an interesting time. As we've been talking about, uh, information travels very fast. And, and also people are very desperate. And the world is getting scarier and scarier. Right. Um, you know, we, we are... You know, a lot of people are just are just are, are effing terrified, man. They're terrified that they're being told that the world's going to end in every conceivable way. The environment right. is being destroyed. We're on the brink of nuclear war. Their kids are going to die from plastic inhalation. And there are partial truths to all of this. The world really is kind of politically unstable. And the environment really is politically unstable. And if your kid eats too many biopersistent toxins, they're going to get sick. These things are all true, but because people don't have the time in the same way that doctors don't have the time to sit down and figure out the difference between biopersistent chemicals and non-biopersistent chemicals, they just use this heuristic chemicals to talk about a thing that they don't have the time to understand and that we only incompletely understand. Right. And so there is an emergency right now, an emergency of rhetoric. <laughs> Because when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I want everyone, I want all of the listeners out there, I want you know both of you, I want me, I want all of us to just take, take a brief, deep breath. Hey, you guys, read, did you read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy ever? Of course, yeah. Douglas Adams. Got, got me through medical school. So, so don't panic. It's <laughs> on the cover of it, right? Exactly, yeah. We can't panic. Right. Because panic leads to the not leading with love. Right. Um, so we got to not panic and we got to take a deep breath and we got to think to ourselves, who am I talking to? How am I talking to them? What are they saying to me? Am I listening to them? Right. And we need to be very careful in the same way that I said effing instead of the word that it was. We need to be careful that when we say something like natural isn't always good, 
that when we say something like that, that we realize that we might be talking about someone's deity. That, that, and that, you know, I mean, the book, the book I'm working on is called One Nature Under God. But one of the things I want to convey to people is that is this deistic aspect, right? In the same way that telling people not to go gluten-free is like talking about their religious ritual. And so you need to be very careful with words and with rituals that are, that are holy to the person that you're talking to. And in the same way that you wouldn't, you know, you know, show pornography to your grandmother, you don't, you don't want to offend people um, by, by telling them that, that their religion is not worthwhile. And, and I think that we, we need to get together. I think that's, that is ground zero. Or not, that's, that's the wrong word, right? Isn't that where that an attack is? Uh, that's like step one, which is not as cool a metaphor, but more accurate. <laughs> that is step one in taking spaceship Earth and all the people that are on it um, and, and turning it in the right direction, which we can do. For sure, I have to say that because otherwise we'll panic. But I really do actually believe it. It's not a lie. I think we can do it, um, and and that's the first step. And it's also the first step um, in securing the cockpit against insane people, um, because no matter how secure your plane is, if there's an insane person in the cockpit, you're rude. Right. And it's easy to get insane people in cockpits, um, no matter what. That's just that's something we can't prevent because our system is made out of human beings. Um, and, and, and one way to make someone insane is to tell them, is to prove to them that they are a mistake. Well, Alan, we're getting really close on time and that would be a great way to end it, but I still have two more questions I got to ask you. So we're going to keep going a little bit longer if it's (laughs) okay with you. (laughs) That's right. We can sums up a lot of what we were talking about. That's what editing's for. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Maybe we'll switch it around, but. Let me read a, just one sentence from your book here. I like this one. It's just, you just said, very simply, we must honestly admit our ignorance. Uh, we must recognize our capacity for self-deception. I think you've done a wonderful job of that. I mean, you're already telling us things that you regret in your book. And it's hard to walk away from a book that you've already put out there and then say, I would have done this differently. I don't feel the same way now. Um, it's very difficult, I think, for many physicians to admit their ignorance uh, to their colleagues and then particularly to their patients. They want to come across as an authority figure because they think and they believe, and, and there is some truth to this, yeah. that they have a better chance of their patients to do what they need to do if they are confident in their physician. Yeah. Right? The, but the, the I don't thing, right? Yeah, yeah, well, right. I mean, what's the but, word? The literal word is indoctrinated. You've also been told that you're smarter than everyone else for like a really right. long time. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, I don't think, though, that patients appreciate how often, and Keith can, you know, expand on this, how often... Doctors call their old attendings or their other colleagues and ask questions and wonder about things. They don't see a lot of that. And doctors don't know everything all the time. They do have to look things up, too. Uh, Alan, you know, we actually talked about this in a, a few podcasts ago. Uh, Norman Beck, who came on, who gave a really great TED Talk about this, how impressed he was that one of the neurosurgeons said, I can't do your operation. I'm not, it, it's, I'm, it's beyond my skill set. Um, he was absolutely impressed by that because he was not only humble, but he cared enough about him. Um, great podcast, but, uh, you know, for anyone who wants to go back and listen to that, uh, if you are the patient right now, Alan, and your doctor, it's ignorance. One, how do you feel about that? And I guess the second part of this question is as a researcher, as someone who spends his whole career trying to find primary source materials, trying to understand something where there are no more eyewitnesses from 2000 years ago. You got to go with the information you have and you're constantly questioning things. How, how would you take your patient? 
Now you're the doctor. How would you take your patient down the path of, you know, I actually don't know this, but this is how I would find out and maybe encourage those patients to go to the right resources and ask the right questions. Does that make sense? Um, so can I punt a little bit on this? Um, yes, you can. I think there's, I don't know if you've ever had, have you ever had a pediatric palliative care specialist on your show? Uh, we no, not. we have not. Not yet. Okay. So sometimes those people, my Lord, I don't know how they do it. Sometimes those people have to tell parents of children that they don't know if their kid's going to survive or something. Um, they don't know if they're, or they may have to tell the parents that their kid's going to die. Um, I can't even imagine. I don't know what those, those are like angels, those people that do that job well. Um, in fact, I think that it's impossible to do that job if you're not, I, I actually think it self-selects. I don't think you could do that job um, because it's kids, right? I mean, these are kids, these are parents and kids. And so, so one thing I would say is maybe those people have an insight into the kind of for lack of a better word, spiritual strength it takes to admit to someone that you don't know how to relieve their pain. Um, and, and, and the ways in which you can say that to someone and not cause them further pain. Because I think one of the things that stops doctors from doing this is not just that they're indoctrinated with being smart or good or whatever, it, it's very difficult to be confronted with pain that you can't address. Um, and most of the people that are in this profession did it because they wanted to help people out. And so when you meet someone who you can't help, uh, it hurts a lot. And so it's easier to fake it. Then you don't have to deal um, with, with that. And so that's another way of saying I'm going to punt and get one of those people on the show and ask them. And I'll listen yeah. because I want to know. Um, because that, that is a skill that I have never had. And only recently am just starting to learn the basics of. And so I'm very crude. It's like I've learned now you can like ask questions. But like – as a physician, that's you have to eventually make statements. Um, yes. I fortunately don't have to do that, so I can just ask <laughs> questions all day long and then like say, "See ya." Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I don't know how you make those statements. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that process looks like. Um, but I, I am in awe of 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 all of you ladies um, who are able to to do that. Um, it's it's incredible. It takes a great deal of courage. Yeah, and part of it is um, the difficulty because we don't want to say we don't know we can't help so definitively that people go to places where they're told a different story and they become victims and there are unfortunately every uh, every palliative care person has a story of someone that um, well, you said you said my child is not going to survive no doctor has ever said that by the way uh, we, and they the say other one in that, a thousand, but one in a thousand to most people is just, they're is, not going to survive. Yeah. And the other thing is no doctor has ever said you're never going to walk again, by the way. I, right. it, and I mean, that's, I, that right. just, we hear that all the time, but people will go to a place where they'll, vi they'll victimize or they'll, they'll, um, uh, they'll exploit that. And you have to be very careful. You don't want to give up and and seed the care but you got to get people to understand that there are times when there just isn't an answer and then we have to pray or do whatever you have to do to get that miracle yeah, yeah. um it's interesting yeah um i want to lighten things up just for a minute and awesome. i know i know we're going <laughs> off uh, over a little but i've got to talk to you about this because i have a personal anecdote it's the chinese restaurant syndrome oh yeah 
because when I was young, um, my dad, who was an orthopedic surgeon before me, must have read New England Journal of Medicine because we were at a Chinese restaurant and he said, you know, there's this syndrome and everybody is getting it now and you eat Chinese food and you get sick. And for years, I would eat Chinese food and I would have this weird reaction. I would swear I was getting this Chinese restaurant syndrome. Um, and I, you know, to find it in your book and to say, holy cats, this is something that I personally experienced and, and my dad the great orthopedist um, sort of dropped in my lap. Um, what can you comment about that? How is, uh, you know, it's, it's such a, an amazing phenomenon um, based on nothing but an anecdotal story. Where did this come from? How did it sweep through? And what does it tell us about medicine and about our ability or our, how people receive medicine? I don't want you guys to cut any of this stuff because I'm having such a great conversation. You know, it's so fun. All right. So here goes. Uh, well, so the first thing I would say is, hey, people out there that are listening, um, if you have, if you are react, if you react to MSG, if you believe that, I sympathize with you. Um, I understand that it sucks, and I want you to know that what all of us, what Colin and Keith and I are about to talk about, doesn't mean that you're stupid or bad. Um, it's it is a way not of talking about you but of talking about the possibility that there might be people, not you, who don't react to Chinese food, but think they do. So that's what I'm gonna start with. Now, now we can do what we do before. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so this guy, this guy, Kwok, um, I've got my book here, because I don't remember this. Yeah, this, this guy, um, Robert Homan Kwok, wrote, this, wrote this, uh, this letter to the New England Journal of Medicine in, in, uh, in 1968, April 4th, 1968, um, about how, you know, oh, I figured it out. You know, um, I figured this thing out. It's Chinese restaurant syndrome. And what's funny is Kwok was writing, you know, he doesn't, I think it was like, he doesn't use MSG as food, but like it was like Northern China or something. But the other Chinese people, they've got this, or Southern China, I forget what it was. Like, they've got this stuff they use, you know, which, which turns out makes food delicious. I lived in China for two years. You know, best of luck making really authentic Chinese cuisine without a touch of MSG. Yeah. Um, again, person out there with MSG syndrome. You can make delicious Chinese food without MSG. I understand that. And I know you've done it yourself. I'm just saying it can be pretty delicious. At any rate. So this guy wrote this letter to this journal. And I think it was a combination of, the, of his Eastern sounding name um, and the magic of being published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And all the other stuff that we've been talking about throughout this podcast, people getting sick randomly and wanting to know an answer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This took off. The answer spread like a meme from the New Journal of Medicine into the entire United States. And if you want my layperson's opinion as someone who's never studied MSG uh, or anything like that, my guess, my guess is that one in a thousand people are MSG sensitive. Um, I've looked in the allergy, I've done a, a lot of research on this, but the truth is it's going to be, it's going to be almost impossible to find something like that out when it comes to food allergies. Let's imagine one in 10,000, let's imagine, and, and this must be true, that there are some allergies that only one in 10,000 people suffer from. That's just a truth that we know is out there. Right. But we're constantly telling those, those are the people that like, are like, I figured out how to cure myself. Right. And they did. They stopped like. They stopped walking past that weird flower outside their house. Like they're just that random person. You know what I mean? And everyone's like, "You're insane," you know. But they're not, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. At any rate, so I'm guessing like one in ten thousand people really do react this way. 
And so, but there's no way for that to show up. It's noise in all in, in the way that we approach truth right now. And that's a question that I'm going to address in my next book, I think, in a, in, a, in a way, which is how do we deal with complex systems, which this kind of thing is true. But because we're so wedded to our form of producing truth, it is a truth that we're blind to. Um, at any rate, this took off with a few evangelists and a lot of authority from the New England Journal of Medicine pretty soon. And, you know, articles in the New York Times it's, you know, and so on. And a little bit of Eastern flair and a little bit of xenophobia mixed mm -hmm. in there. You have the perfect recipe for a food fad. And all of a sudden, people were prohibiting this. And in the same way that that um, the guy in Brazil, you know, felt better on my diet, um, there's going to be a placebo effect to this. People are just going to think they felt better. And there's also a nocebo effect, which I talk about in the book, and which fortunately for the, P, the ladies that are listening, uh, I don't have to explain. Um, I'm just using ladies, of course, as the general word for guys now because I'm so sick of having to say guys. Uh, you know, that that probably made people sick at Chinese restaurants just hearing about this. And so they were looking around for MSG on the menu and or maybe it was psychological or maybe you just got a headache. And then you were like, you know, if, if Chinese food, if you, you know, if you're eating something every once in a while, if you eat Chinese food, you're like, oh, my God, seven days ago, I ate Chinese food. Must have been the MSG. Right. No, you're just a human being that occasionally feels bad. Um, and this is something that the that the quack doctors exploit too, right? They're like, do you ever feel tired? <laughs> Are you ever sad? Or does your head hurt? Do you have any yeah. fat on your bones at all? Or are you pure muscle like me? If you ever feel bad or you're not pure muscle, there's something wrong and my diet will cure it, right? So I think this is what happens. So people project normal problems onto invented causes of those problems. And, and there we were. And now people don't think about MSG too much. It's still out there, but it's fading. Yeah. Um, and I think gluten's going to be around for longer than MSG because there are a lot of people with celiac. There may be some people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. If you've got 5% of a population that really is reacting to a kind of food, then it means you actually really do need gluten-free labels on everything. You, you just need, right. you know, in the same way, you know, and, and so it's going to be interesting to see whether together, all of us, you, me, the listeners, and then everyone else to whom this meme propagates, whether we can figure out a way to live in a world where 5% of people can't eat gluten and the other 95% can acknowledge that and also not be scared of gluten and also not fall for the people that want to weaponize that whole situation. Right. right. Good point. Well, yeah. Alan, we are at the end of our time here and I know this is a good podcast because I want to keep talking t with you for another hour <laughs> and you've given me several ideas for other podcasts we're going to do. So this is, this is great. But I will have to ask you to come back on when your next book comes out, and uh, we'd love to have I, you. It would be an absolute pleasure. I was like I said, really privileged. I got to you know. I mean, one more thing is, it's all the scientists and doctors who read my book and reached out to me because it was for them as much as it was the orthorexics. Um, and so, thank you. Um, it, it, as much as I'm ashamed of it, uh, you've made me feel good about it, and that's something that I that I keep with me. Um, so I'm really grateful. Well, Alan, just to close things off, tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, what you're up to. We'll put links to this in the show notes. And then tell us what you have for breakfast this morning. I am on Twitter, uh, Alan Levinovitz. Um, the uh, the not mean Alan Levinovitz has only been tweeting for like, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever. So take everything on there with a grain of salt if you go back through the timeline. But from now on, hopefully I'll be nicer. And uh, I didn't have anything for breakfast today. Um, I just was so excited to like go do the things that I was doing uh, that I, I made my, my, my daughter. It's Halloween. So I made my daughter like a weird alien egg breakfast. Um, and, and there was a piece of toast that I made for her that I was going to, that she didn't want. And I was going to eat it, but then I wasn't hungry. I don't know. So yeah, I didn't have breakfast. There we go. Fair enough. The, 
the non-breakfast champions. Excellent. <laughs> it is Halloween. My daughter's only five months old, so she's going to do the trick-or-treating, but a little early for her to eat <laughs> all that massive amount of sugar, too. even though you talked my about that in your book, years, too. <laughs> my daughter's five years old, too. So, Well, five months is my, my daughter. Oh, oh, don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go easy. Oh, yeah, Got yeah easy. go right. easy on that one. But, uh, but later yeah, on, she's going to Watch out it. for the sugar. <laughs> well, Alan, thank you again. Uh, we had a heck of a lot of fun today. This is this is great. And um, like I said, we're going to get all this stuff up in the show notes. And um, everybody, that was Dr. Alan Levinovitz. He is the <laughs> author of The Gluten Lie. But as he said, there's a lot more in there than just the title. And uh, it really was. It's so much more we could talk about. But Alan, thank you again for coming on. It's just a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really appreciate it. And everybody, that's uh, Kyle Miller here, Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum. Wherever, whenever you're listening to this, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at purespectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at purespectrum.com. <laughs>